Investors Chronicle. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the IC interviews. Uh, I'm Dave Baxter from the Investors Chronicle, and today I'm very pleased to welcome a guest you may be familiar with, either from your own portfolios or simply from what you hear about what's going on in markets um, and some of the kind of more prominent stocks of uh, recent years. Um, that's Stephen Yu. Uh, Stephen is the lead fund manager on the Blue Whale Growth Fund. Uh, Blue Whale Growth launched in late 2017, and it became a bit of a, uh, perhaps an upstart among the uh, global equity funds. Um, it made some very good returns from a high conviction portfolio um, with around between 25 to 35 stocks often, and with a focus on uh, the likes of the FANG companies, among others. Um, that focus, of course, did leave the fund in the eye of the storm um, when markets turned last year. And having made some really, really strong returns in previous years, it was down by um, just shy of 28% for 2022, which is a common story for many of the kind of popular funds you might hold. Uh, so, Stephen, um, thank you for joining us today. Um, as we speak, um, so worth noting, due to the sort of logistics of scheduling, we are speaking in uh, mid-February. Things could always turn. But without jinxing it, as we speak, markets have been a little bit healthier so far, rallied quite strongly. But there are concerns that this is simply uh, a, a bear rally and, you know, it's all kind of <clears throat> hot air and things could quickly turn quite negative again. Um, I, I know that you're you're not a macro investor, you do have more of a bottom-up approach, but it's it's interesting how kind of macro-focused everything has been in the last year or so. We've been obsessed with inflation, we've been obsessed with recession concerns for a good reason. Um, but in, in terms of how that is affecting what you're doing in the portfolio, you, what are your main concerns? Um, what are you trying to um, kind of get the fund ready for um, at this point? Thank you, David. So if we look back to 2022 performance, which is a very important year for us in terms of that uh, since inception that we didn't do very well in 2022. And if I try to break down the performance into the first half of last year and the second half of last year until today, that you can see that all the underperformance or the losses happened in the first six months of last year. And that obviously would be attributed to the interest rate risk in terms of valuation resets on some of our company, which we deem as very high quality. At the same time, they have structural growth drivers for the many years to come. If we just refer to how the market have done since July last year until today, we can probably say the interest rate risk has come down dramatically, or we are approaching the end of the interest rate price cycle. So I think that is quite clear that if you believe that's the case, then it means the in terms of further valuation resets to for some of our company to become more ch- to become cheaper from here is going to be more difficult. So the biggest risk in the market going forward from here would be the risk of a recession, which is something that we have been talking about since sometime last year. It still have not happened yet. And you might have seen the UK data that the UK, even for the UK economy, we have basically escaped the recession uh, in the last quarter. 
and so but of course i mean this is not just a quarterly thing is i mean the economy is slowing down on the back of higher interest rate mortgage rate squeeze on consumer spending higher energy bills etc cetera, etc cetera. so a recession is inevitable okay we can debate on whether the recession is going to be a prolonged recession is going to be a severe recession or it's going to be a shallow recession we don't know that yet but it's going to be a bit more clearer later this year so the important thing from our perspective is to invest into high quality businesses that could survive and if not benefit or become stronger on the back of recession so the recession risk is now a lot higher than interest rate risk and of course if we do go into a recession you can expect that interest rate could be lower that central bankers might reduce the interest rate just to to uh, smooth out the uh, recovery in the economy and how does that affect uh, kind of what you do and don't like in the fund i mean you the fund has often been associated as i mentioned with uh, you know quite a preference for for tech and us tech although that's not everything you you invest in yeah, how does that affect which names you'd like there? Because, of course, last year you sort of bailed out of, you know, many of the so-called fang stocks and you do still retain some exposures elsewhere. Correct. So we are very cautious about anything that's consumer-facing, so whether they are tech companies or not tech companies. And this is because that it's not just about a recession that we're talking about. We are talking about continuous squeeze on consumer spending in terms of high energy bills, mortgage rates, and inflation, obviously, and food prices and all that stuff. So in terms of our day-to-day disposable income into the next, let's say, two to three years, I think it's fair to assume that we will have less money to spend or selectively that we need to spend on certain things that are necessities rather than discretionary. So anything that's related to discretionary spending or consumer facing, we are very cautious of. Then within the tech space, if you look at the lights of Amazon, Alphabet, Google or Facebook, they are all consumer facing. So of course, Amazon would be through e-commerce that we could be shopping less online because we have less money to spare. And then as far as Google Alphabet is concerned, from an advertiser's perspective that if people are not buying the goods or if people are not being converted to make the transactions while they are clicking on the advert, then advertisers would be spending less money on Google, for example. So anything that we we, we, we think could be impacted on the back of a squeeze on consumer spending. We have exited uh, on the back of, I mean, since late uh, 2021 and then throughout 2022 as well. But, but of course, that would be names that we are still backing that we think they could benefit. And I'm sure we will touch on some of this uh, further in the podcast. Just, just staying with that kind of idea, one name I was interested to see in your, your fact sheets is um, Charles Schwab. I mean, is that not, I suppose it isn't necessarily consumer spending per se, but isn't that quite vulnerable to, to recessions, people getting worried about markets falling um, and just that kind of sentiment dropping off? So we started uh, our investment in Charles Schwab during the summer of 2021. And that was on the back of our recognition that interest rate is going to be higher from where we were in 2021. Of course, one thing that we didn't expect was we didn't expect the level of interest rate is going to 
go to such a high level. So in the US now, it's going to be about 5%. We thought might be it would have stopped at about 3 to 4%. The reason that Charles Schwab is going to do quite well is similar to a bank um, that they make money through the net interest margin, which means that they don't eat for customers on the Charles Schwab platform, which is the largest investment platform in the US. You don't get paid a lot of interest on your cash balance which is typically about 10% of your portfolio will be sitting in cash. At the same time, Charles Schwab would be able to uh, invest those cash into high yielding products. So they basically get the net interest margin. And if you believe, which is our base case scenario, that interest rate is going to stay higher for longer, doesn't mean like it would need to stay at 5% for the next three years. It could be 4%, but we're not going back to the 2% regime in the next couple of years. So if interest rate is going to stay higher for longer, then Charles Schwab would be able to make a lot more money in the next three years compared to the last three years. And of course, if you're looking at the recession risk about maybe the jittery in the equity market, of course, Charles Schwab would be part of that. Looking at the inflows into uh, in terms of new customers addition, it shows that Charles Schwab is still in a very strong position to capitalize on that. So balancing out the pros and cons in terms of a recession risk, at the same time, the interest rate staying higher for longer, that we believe that the valuation of Charles Schwab is very attractive and they, are, they would be able to make more money in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. I suppose you're perhaps seeing similar things with some of the very well-known brokers in the UK benefiting from their um, cash uh, exposure. Turning to, I suppose, a different development in in the fund, um, which you you addressed in your your own literature, people might have been surprised to uh, see kind of energy exposure popping up um, in the fund. And as mentioned, you've kind of made some, I suppose, dramatic moves away from some of the uh, kind of fang stocks in the around the middle points of, of last year that did strike me as I suppose quite a contrast with your your stated focus on kind of high quality companies attractive valuations um, wh- when you actually came on this podcast in mid 2021 you were talking about kind of you wouldn't want cyclical exposures like banks but also like energy companies I mean is this not does this not open you up to accusations of kind of style drift you know how would you counter any concerns about that yeah so i i would first have to say the short answer that this is not style drift uh we are still only want to buy company that are of very high quality at the same time attractive valuation how we define that is we prefer that the free cash flow delivery trajectory from a company is going to be very high or likelihood of the company achieving their targets very high rather than a bit uncertain. So what it means is if I put alongside uh, Google, alongside, let's say, Canadian Natural Resources, which is the new energy company that we invested into, is in the next three to five years, or let's say next three years, we would believe that the free cash flow delivery from Canadian Natural Resources would be significantly higher compared to Google just because that for for Google, we already talk about the uncertainty in consumer spending, which could drag on for some time. On the other hand, that on the back of the Ukraine crisis, at the same time, the geopolitics uncertainties in Asia between China and Taiwan, also the relationship between Saudi Arabia 
and the US, we recognize that the oil price could be well supported at a higher level versus the periodic cycle, despite a recession is yet to come. So what does that actually mean? It means that historically, oil price is very much driven by supply and demand. So if the economy is booming, the oil price can go up to about $100. If the global economy is in a recession, the oil price can go back down to $40 to $50. So it makes the oil price very cyclical. If you are a company operating within that regime, then it makes you quite cyclical or low quality businesses. But given all the uncertainty that we talk about in terms of geopolitics, that we would suggest that the oil price could be well supported at the current level, let's say $70 to $80 for the, for the, for the next couple of years. So we are not forecasting that oil price need to go up to $100 or, or more, but we are, we are suggesting that based on our research that the oil price could be supported at the current level for longer. So what it means is, if we can find an oil producer, which is the one that we have got, that the cost of production per barrel of oil is sub 30 and $40, it means that it's a bit similar to your child swap scenario. They are able to make the free cash flow delivery in terms of the probability of them meeting that target is very high in the next few years. So let's assume that oil price remain at $70 to $80 for the next three years. So there's no inflation because the oil prices remain constant. Then if you're producing oil at $30 and $40 uh, per barrel, it means that you're going to make quite a lot of money in the next couple of years. And the one thing, going back to your questions at the beginning about the macro uncertainties, is the macro environment is very challenging at the moment. Despite the fact that we are not in a recession on a technical basis, there's a lot of worries in the market in terms of all oh, about consumers, about the uh, post-pandemic uh, implications, in terms of the staff shortages. It's very difficult to find a single, like find a company in the industry that would basically have no issues whatsoever <laughs> in the next couple of years. Of course, I mean, you marry the pros and cons and try to marry that with valuation of the company to make sure that you're buying something that already have price in the uncertainties. But that's not like a single thing that you can, you can say from our research that this company would just able to do whatever in the next few years, despite what's going on in the world. Like even in the context of Microsoft is our top 10 holdings, we're still backing it. And you would have seen the shares has recovered quite nicely in the last couple of weeks on the back of the AI or ChatGBT. But mm -hmm. if we do go into a recession globally, then Microsoft is would, would be exposed to that. So let's say if European companies are cutting down or shutting down their factories or, or, or offices, then we would have less Office 365 workers, which means Microsoft would be making less money. So it's not it's not like foolproof that they are not going to go make less money in the, in, in the context of recession. However, in the context of the Canadian natural resources, the energy company we have got, which we only have one at the moment, is they could still continue to deliver the free cash flow that we expect them to do, assuming the oil price stay at the oh. current level. So that makes this, uh, this company very high quality. And of course, we one thing that we have always done is we are highly selective in terms of how we define a high quality 
company, such as the management team, return on invested capital profile, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, a lot of people or maybe value managers or managers that doesn't have the quality focus could be buying into BP or Shell or some other names. I'm sure you will still, you will equally make a lot of money on the back of that uh, thesis. It's just from our perspective that we are highly selective. So if we couldn't have found this company, we wouldn't have invested into the energy sector, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, yeah. So you, you don't, um, would would you see yourself sort of picking up more names in the sector? Is there anything else that's been, although you may not be able to name it, is there anything else that's been kind of, you know, ticking those boxes? I, I think this goes back to our investment philosophy that we are bottom up, we are highly selective, and then we focus on the quality of the business to start with. So to you, use an, another example which is linking back to Charles Schwab is we talk about that we don't invest into banks because we just cannot get comfortable about the complexity behind the balance sheet in a bank like you never get to the bottom of how how the asset is being risk adjusted the weighting the liabilities and all that of course now like you will keep reading on the headlines continuously about the different scandals that's happening within the banking sector it's just from an external investor perspective, you just never get a clear idea of what goes on behind the, the business model. But obviously, if you believe that interest rates are going to go up, I mean, banks is going to make a lot more money. But from our perspective, we are not going to invest into banks. So if we couldn't have managed to found a company called Charles Schwab, which is exposed to a similar dynamic without the complexity on the balance sheet that we are very comfortable with in terms of the quality of the business, then we wouldn't have invested in this company or we wouldn't have invested into a company that would benefit from a rising interest rate environment. So that is exactly the same as what we do in the energy space that we're highly selective. We we start the process from a bottom-up perspective. You can, we, can, we can find something then we would be interested. If we couldn't, then we would just go somewhere else to, to look for other ideas. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mention um, that, uh, you know, I suppose no no company is without its risks at the minute. And there are so many um, immense macro uncertainties. You know, I was, I was looking earlier that you, you do have names like ASML and NVIDIA in the portfolio. And, you know, semiconductor players have been very popular for good reason, but also they can become a bit of a, a political football with China and the US, for example. Bearing in mind those uncertainties, do you therefore, um, you know, your your fund literature states that, you know, the buy and hold mantra and the idea of kind of um, making capital returns over a five year period, does that change given those uncertainties? Does it become more of a sort of ducking and diving? Do you have to kind of turn over the portfolio more as you try and deal with these these unknowns? So not so much. It, it all depends on the companies in itself. So for the companies that we have less conviction or we are less clear about the growth trajectory in the next few years, we would have already exited those names as we talk about the FANGs. In the context of the semiconductors, is a very interesting sector in a way that we, on our top 10, we have both ASML and LAM research. If you follow what is going on in the industry itself, it's all about reshoring opportunities. People talk about reshoring opportunities as like a fancy theme. If you really want to zero in, like which industry is going to benefit the most is semiconductors equipment companies. 
if you look at, if you follow what's going on in the industry, there's a slide produced by ASML that shows about over $300 billion has been committed to build new semiconductor foundry across the world in the US, in Europe, in Japan, and in South Korea. So about 300 billion work. Why is so much money being spent to build new foundry? It's because of the reshoring opportunities going on the back of the geopolitics in Asia Pacific, especially in Taiwan, what China might do to the TSMC assets in Taiwan. So the world is quite concerned that so, so hence the government, both in the US and the EU, have come up with tax subsidies to to incentivize semiconductor company to build new foundry in in their own territory. So, which means that if you're the company that's selling the mission critical equipments like ASML and LAM research, then you're going to sell many more of your equipment in the next many years. So what has happened uh, in 2022? Obviously, there's a few things that why ASML and LAM research have not done well in terms of the share share price performance was on the back of uh, a reduction in consumer demand for some of the consumer facing gadgets like PCs, smartphones, memory and all the stuff. So that is cyclical. That is not the place to be. And at the same time, we we would be reading all the headlines about oh, China, uh, US is going to impose restriction in terms of some of these companies selling their technology or equipment to, to the Chinese players and all that stuff. And of course, that caused a bit of jittery in, in the share price. The way that we assess the thesis is over the medium term, three to five years, these two companies or this sector is going to make a lot more money compared to the last three years. The shorter term uh, headwinds is not helpful, hence the shares has not done well. But if you can look through the shorter term, like you can actually see where they're heading. So in contrast to the fangs, the shorter term is uncertain, but then the longer term is equally uncertain <laughs> as well. So hence, that is why we are still backing the likes of ASML and LAM Research. And of course, I mean, we, I'm very happy to talk about NVIDIA that on the back of the kind of the introduction of ChatGBT, you can see that AI is now more of a real thing to most people than compared to before it's only available to to the scientists or to the phds how do you um when it comes to i suppose the the and using this term very broadly but the tech names how do you um kind of assess those trends by what's what looks genuinely promising and what looks perhaps like uh you know guff to use a weird word for example you know the metaverse has been a been a very divisive um kind of subject and i suppose that nvidia has had quite a quite an interesting lap but some some managers would be quite skeptical um but you mentioned chat gpt which is very interesting uh, yes well. i i think in contrast to so we, we we like nvidia a lot uh it's one of our favorite uh companies yeah. i think using maybe metaverse which is something i'm slightly skeptical about i'm not I'm a believer in the metaverse, but I'm just a slightly skeptical on the timing of the metaverse in our day-to-day, like for most people. So hence, we 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 are not a fan of uh, Facebook or Meta that we exited quite early on this time last year. The reason for my skepticism on metaverse is all about the timing, right? It could be a five-year thing, 
which might be unlikely. It could be a 20-year thing. It could be a 50-year thing. It could be the next generation. It might not even be my generation who people who actually want to spend a lot of their time at home with with the goggle, like in terms of living in the metaverse. And one thing that I actually could come up with a scenario that when that might happen is when global warming become quite quite a severe kind of phenomenon in the world that we can no longer go outside of our home because it's just unlivable the world then maybe we will end up living in the metaverse right okay is that going to come soon it's probably unlikely is it going to come at some point it could be and this is a bit similar to your pandemic to our i mean the pandemic period that at the time is most people wouldn't have dreamt about shopping online. Most people wouldn't have dreamt about oh, doing meetings in like the face-to-face meetings in contrast to that, doing that at home. And, and suddenly they realize actually there's quite a lot of benefit with hybrid working, working from home, shopping online, doing a lot of things at home rather than you have to physically go outside to do it. But the pandemic was the proven point that it forced a lot of people to revisit kind of the the habits in terms of, oh, maybe I could change this. So metaverse is going to face a similar hurdle. And unless we have something very dramatic in the next many years, hopefully not, <laughs> then the, <laughs> adop- the adoption rate is could be quite slow. So what I'm saying is like, if you want to invest in the metaverse, I probably want to maybe wait until I can see some clear signs of metaverse being adopted do you see what i'm saying like i don't want to be too early i don't want to be like 10 years early i want to be maybe five years early or three years early before it become important and this is similar thing when you look at the internet or the online world ecosystem is of course internet has been around since the 1990s amazon has been around since the 1990s so is many more companies but because we didn't have the infrastructure in terms of the fiber connection, the 5G, or and even the smartphone that could allow us to do many things anytime that we want, that the adoption of many of these uh, online services have not been able to capture the bigger audience. It was only until when Apple decided to launch an iPhone in 2008, and at the same time, that by the time you get to 2014, then most people would be using a smartphone rather than the, your Nokia or BlackBerry and all that. Then it la- allows many apps or services to capture the, the biggest audience. That's how you make the most money. I mean, Facebook wasn't even around during the 1990s. I mean, it was a company that started in, in the early, in, in, in the late 2000s. So, so that's that's what I'm saying about the metaverse. Is at some point we we, we will get there, but but we're not there yet. I mean, that's a similar thing as blockchain, isn't it? Or maybe crypto. I'm yeah. sure at some point we would have a digital currency, and you would have seen Bank of England is already considering that they were they might want to do something in the next five to ten years. So, but it could take some time. So, in, in terms of those kind of tech trends, it's mainly you've mentioned AI. Is there anything else that's kind of standing out you think is kind of already having established itself and looking like a interesting driver of returns in, in the coming years I, I think ai is actually quite quite big space in itself because you you're not only talking about the lights of the chat gbt which is a bit more uh, kind of services oriented about more intellectual kind of the services sector you're talking about automation in factories you're talking about autonomous driving in terms of when you look at some of the high-end 
cars that's being produced now, you would have all the sensors that could allow the cars to to sense all the different objects around where you are going, and then at some point it's going to the autonomous driving is going to take shape as well. And then you do need to have the lights of the NVIDIA GPU to power that. So the AI in itself is a bit like your uh uh, like like a generic terms, but the implication of that is is enormous mm. in terms yeah. of recommendation. And also at the same time, one thing that we talk about, like before the chat GBT comes in, how you understand about the maybe AI or analytics is when you go onto YouTube or go to Amazon to to buy something. Once you have, let's say, go onto YouTube and watch a video for like thirty seconds or a minute, you would. You would have seen some recommendation quite quickly to say to suggest to you, or oh, maybe you're interested in this video too, maybe whatever that is, or once you bought a product, Amazon would recommend you to say, oh, maybe you're interested to have a look at this. Historically, how this has been done is done by sampling. So they, Amazon or Google would have your some of your data, let's say your age group, your demographics, where you are based what you have done before, looking at your history, looking at your three years history, your browsing data, or maybe your transaction data on Amazon. But nowadays, you no longer need to do any of this. A lot of this computing and analytics is done on a real-time basis. So what it means is Google or Amazon doesn't need to know as much about you compared to before. And now a lot of this is done through real-time analytics and a bit of like artificial intelligence behind the scene as well as learning about you real time what what do you like to to see after this video what has been your actions telling been been telling telling them that what what you would like so so basically there's many application on the back of this that, that could be quite powerful um which is yet to come and and sticking with the uh, I suppose the tech allocation that's as I've mentioned a couple of times that's something the fund has been very strongly linked with um although you always do you do protest you're not a tech fund you have a greater scope than that how would you see that kind of mix shifting I mean I, I think uh end of January you had what around I know the definitions are very subjective perhaps but uh around 45 percent in in tech how does that compare with sort of early years of the fund um and would you see that kind of increasing or or how do you see it shaping up? Yeah, so the, the definition on the factory is slightly misleading because uh, it's done by some standard industry uh, categorization. And as some people might know that MasterCard mm. and Visa has always been considered as a technology company. So that include in that 45%, which MasterCard and Visa account for about 10% of the fund uh, in mm. total. So the the num the the so once we we categorize some of these names that our inter, our technology exposure is a bit lower. So if I look at the way that we categorize whether a company is a technology or not, so let's say Microsoft, Nvidia, ASML would be considered as technology. Then at the moment we have about a quarter of the fund in technology, about twenty five to thirty percent. Historically, I think during, especially during the pandemic period, when we would have the likes of Amazon, PayPal, Google, Facebook on our top 10, which you don't see that anymore. I mean, they're not even in the fund. Then at the time, I think we would probably have peaked at about maybe 40%, I'm guessing, at, at the time, two, two years ago now. So, so we are now being very selective. Of course, I mean, we still like company that can grow. 
uh, over the medium term and take a bigger share of the world GDP, we think that those uh, companies or sectors could be coming from a, a different place outside of tech. So historically, it was really about tech. And, and going back to to some of the stocks that we talked about earlier, about Charles Schwab or Canadian Natural Resources, we, we also invested into the U.S. railroads is five years ago, we would not be interested in those companies because we couldn't see why this company would end up taking a bigger share of the world GDP in 2022. But now, based on our research on the back of the geopolitics uncertainty in terms of the reshoring opportunities, that in the next five years, we can see that these companies or sectors could take a bigger share of the world GDP and some of our money is being is going to be spent with this company rather than rather than just the tech companies. So, so the, the interesting thing about, the, in terms of our investable universe is in contrast to what some commentators might suggest that, oh, a lot of shares has become cheaper now. Surely there's more hunting ground to look for tech mm-hmm. investment. To us, our investable universe within the technology space or digital transformation space have actually shrunk. So we have, we have actually seen our investable universe uh, become smaller in terms of what we would like to invest into as far as technology is concerned. So hence, when you look at our top 10 holdings now, like we have some medical equipment companies like Sartorius and Dexcom, you can, you can I mean, they are healthcare equipment companies, but then in terms of the growth opportunity they have is, is very attractive. It is very structural. And we would rather to have the likes of Dexcom or Sartorius than, let's say, Google or Facebook, hmm. which wasn't the case, let's say, five years ago. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to ask kind of where, you know, if, if tech is kind of less of a sweet spot now, where, where is looking more interesting? Um, I mean, you mentioned healthcare. Is there anywhere else where you think, take an optimistic note, there is kind of a, a greater opportunity set than there was? It, it's a difficult one. Obviously, we... From our perspective, we would have tried our best to pick the best 25 stocks within our our investable universe and hence the names that you see in our top 10 and, and names that we have talked about before. The one thing that I would say is the world is very challenging in terms of outlook. It's, it's just impossible to find a clear winner. But if you can take a medium-term view, which is about three to five years, from our perspective in terms of how how we model a company, how much money they could make, the investment thesis, the outlook for this company, then then yeah, we, we are backing the companies that we, we have got in the fund. And of course, we continue to look for better opportunities, but there's many names that we used to like uh, before that we no longer like them as much. So I give you one example is Adobe. So Adobe has been featured as our top 10 companies, top 10 holdings in the fund since inception until Q2 2022. And then you no longer see Adobe in our top 10. And now we still have a very small position in the, in the fund. We, uh, we, we, we're revising our investment thesis in Adobe. The, the thing with Adobe is it's a very good company. Right, Adobe is not going to disappear. If people have used that product, you know that product, Photoshop and video editing app is very good. Their business model is very robust in terms of subscription and all that stuff. But the problem with Adobe is like, what are they going to do in the next five years? 
how are they going to take more market share from here in terms of digital transformation, in terms of creative campaigns, and if you're worried about the world might be going backwards in terms of discretionary spending, then maybe it's going to be a lot more difficult for Adobe to grow. So, so hence, it it's all goes, comes back to where the world is heading in the next couple of years. And, and what we're saying is the world is very uncertain. There's many things that you could expect to happen. It might or might not happen, but then you need to be prepared for that. So we are highly selective in terms of what we're looking at. The last thing I would say is like, surely if you look at the kind of the chat GBT space or the AI space, there are probably quite a few small companies that are listed in the market that might, that, that would have done very well. I think I've seen, seen a few names that have gone up like a few hundred percent in the last couple of weeks. Very small company. They're, they're probably not, I mean, they're definitely not making money or anything like that. However, is it wouldn't have fit our criteria because the competitive positioning has not yet been established. So you know that, yeah, AI is a good theme to be in, but then how do you actually pick the company? The, mm -hmm. the conclusion that we, we ended up always is NVIDIA would be the names to pick as far as the AI space is concerned. You don't actually need to know who is going to win. Is that going to be Bing.com with ChatGBT or Google slash Bart? Like you don't need that. You still need to have the NVIDIA GPU to power those those queries. So so hence, I think when you go down into the kind of the bottom of research, then the opportunity set is even smaller than than the high level thematic or or the the themes because ultimately you want to be you want to do much better than the market, not just buying some themes but in in some bad companies. Do you find yourself then, I mean, you've mentioned, for example, equipment providers in, in certain spaces. Do you find yourself tempted more to the, what people like to call sort of picks and shovels plays than the like direct plays on, on, a, on a theme? Yes, I, I think we, we have a bit of both. I, I think some, so, so we, we definitely have a bit of both. So in terms of the semiconductors, equipment companies like ASMLM Research, I think that fits the bill. In terms of the Sartorius, equipment in the healthcare space in biologics they produce the equipment for for the covid vaccine drugs makers to to deliver the drugs so that is something that we like but at the same time it does depends on the sectors or the underlying growth driver in itself so let's say nvidia is the pioneer in terms of what they do you can't really invest into the picture shuffle like that is the company that is going to to be the face of the product in terms of I mean, that's the product they're making. At the same time, I think for Canadian natural resources, is some people would have asked, oh, why don't you invest into the equivalent of the semiconductors or healthcare space and go into some old services company or maybe even like uh, maybe some 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 other things that, that works within the oil industry. That doesn't actually work at all because the thesis from our perspective about the oil price going to stay at a high level for longer is because of the level of underinvestment for the last many years. And of course, because of the geopolitics, because of, uh, let's say, the sanction on Russia, there's, there's going to be even less investment into the energy sector. So which means that the oil price could be well supported because the supply is heavily constrained, not only for the last many years, but in the next many years at the same time. So let's say if you were to invest into the oil services sector, you are hoping that those 
energy company is going to spend a lot more money to expand the the, the level investment or to build new old, old fields. Like that's not the case. I mean, you, you would have seen some of the old majors, they, they are making a lot of money, but they're not spending the money. They're returning the money to shareholders. And in terms of, I suppose, turning to another element of many global funds, um, you you do have a, a sizable exposure to North America. As I've said, it's quite quite a common site in that sector. Um, is that still, I mean, does that still remain the kind of unbeatable market when it comes to things like earning strength? Um, or would you see yourself kind of moving more into, uh, I mean, upping your still relatively sizable Europe allocation? Or would you, you know, you don't have much in Asia, for example, would you go more directly into, into that market? Yeah, so the, the, the one thing that ha- is all equally mi- slightly misleading on a fact sheet is it shows that we have about 66, 7% invested in US equities. And that number have not really changed in the last five years. So we, mm. we have always got about two thirds of the fund invested into US listed companies. But what have changed, though, is when you look at the underlying revenue of where this company are generating from, that that composition have evolved. So historically, when we were invested into the FANGs, let's say Amazon, Google, and Facebook, they are all global companies. So about 50% of the revenue would be coming outside North America. So let's say in Europe or Asia. And and that's, and that's we like these companies those companies at the time because of the digital transformation opportunities. But since then, while you would have seen that we are still heavily exposed to U.S. equities, but the composition of those revenue streams have changed dramatically that we're now investing into the Charles Schwab, the U.S. railroads, and some other names that are more U.S.-centric, that they are making money in within the U.S. economy or North America economy. And if you want me to, to, to make a kind of the uh, uh, kind of like a projection in terms of where we want to be. We don't really care about whether where the company is listed, whether it's going to be Europe or Asia or the US. But one thing we are quite clear is we want more uh, underlying exposure to North America as a region. So we want more of our fund in terms of revenue that is going to be generated from North America, not from Europe, and not from Asia, and definitely not from China, for example. Why is that? So, so going back to the point that I made earlier about the world outlook is very uncertain, that, of course, if you are in Europe or in Germany or even in the UK, you know that this energy crisis is going to buck us for the many years to come. Like in the UK now, we're talking about, oh, should we expand the storage capacity for gas? And I think it got got voted down and and some people are suggesting oh the government is making a bet that we're not going to have gas shortages and hence the gas prices whatever the energy prices is going to stay low for for the for the next for this coming winter we don't know that i i mean it could happen in it could take place in both scenarios and at the same time if you talk about in germany in europe like you don't want to be in europe because of what's going on now and then if you're looking in asia I think China is a region that we have avoided for the last many years. That in terms of the geopolitics, I'm not entirely sure whether you want to be investing into the Chinese economy. So let's say if you want to invest into a Chinese company that's going to benefit domestically in China, it's very difficult, right? Like you know, like you, it, it could be a hit and miss. And we would rather probably just avoid those opportunities and, and focus on some a region that is politically relatively stable, like 
surely they have their own thing. But then in terms of the strength of the consumers, the U.S. consumers has proven to be the most resilient consumers in terms of spending versus the rest of the world. I'm not saying like it is like a no-brainer because they will still get impacted by inflation. They will still get impacted by high-level interest rate. They will still get impacted by higher petrol prices. But it's just on a relative basis, it's a lot less compared to the rest of the world. So if you have to choose, then we would rather have more in North America. But we are highly selective. So we do have some some exposure to to Asia, like through Nintendo. Uh, we have a we have invested into Nintendo and we like what they're doing in terms of the games and the consoles. And so selectively we do, but it's just like when you take a high, high level theme, we would have a bias towards the North America uh, region. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose that's kind of one to watch as we see Obviously, economies are going to be, well, you would assume economies are going to be having different experiences over the next few years as we move through uh, challenging times. Well, lots of interesting information to to unpick there. Uh, Very useful, but I'm I'm afraid that is all we have time for. So I just say uh, thank you, Stephen, for for joining us and uh, thank you, everyone, for, for listening. Take care. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 